Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Aaron Sagers, and this is Talking Strange. Hey there, spooky nerds, and welcome to Talking Strange, a paranormal pop culture show with the Den of Geek Network. As always, I am your host, journalist, author, researcher of all things weird, Aaron Sagers, also from 28 Days Haunted on Netflix and Paranormal, caught on camera on Travel Channel and the Max streaming service. And honestly, I am more than a little bit biased, but I would say during this spooky season or really any time, both those shows are worth checking out for some real life scares. Okay, on to the episode. So this episode, I speak with director Jerry Rothwell. He is an acclaimed documentary filmmaker whose work includes Deep Water, which was about Donald Crowhurst's 1968 round-the-world yacht race, which sadly ended in tragedy. He also did the film Heavy Load, about developmentally challenged people who start a punk band. He also did Town of Runners, about two Ethiopian girls who aspire to become track athletes, and then Sour Grapes about the largest wine fraud case in history. So if you're paying attention, I have not mentioned the paranormal once, which is why it is especially notable because he, Jerry Rothwell, is now behind the Apple TV Plus docuseries, The Enfield Poltergeist. In fact, it is a four-part hybrid docu-series which reinvestigates one of the most famous modern-day hauntings. The case inspired the horror movie The Conjuring 2, and it's actually the basis for an upcoming stage play starring Catherine Tate, who we all know and love from The Office and Doctor Who. So, the Enfield Poltergeist features hundreds of hours of rare audio archive, first-hand witnesses, and then the benefit of 40 years of hindsight. According to the synopsis, the series is an ambitious genre piece that will, like any good detective story, sway the audience between belief and disbelief. The series explores our universal and timeless fascination with the unexplained and the idea of trauma impacting our reality. It's also a notable project because Rothwell reconstructed the Hodgson House, Hodgson House in North London and he has cast actors to portray the real life people involved in the case. But he also has actors lip syncing to the actual audio recorded by paranormal investigator Morris Gross. The series, I've checked it out, the series is a compelling and quite frankly creepy look at the story and all four parts drop October 27 on Apple TV+. So let's get to the interview with director Jerry Rothwell. So Jerry, it's a pleasure speaking with you. And right out of the gate, I I must say that this material is something that I'm quite fascinated in, but I felt like I knew this story quite a bit. And then watching this docu-series, 
you really kind of open it up in a whole new way that we haven't seen before. And I was initially just curious about what your awareness was of this case before taking on this project and why were you attracted to this uh this story sure so i mean i i remember this as a teenager i think i was 15 when in 1977 um uh when you know the front page of the daily mirror which was the uk's biggest selling newspaper carried this article just a few days after these events had started happening in this house in north london and i think it's kind of like you know, it certainly kind of unsettled all my classmates around, you know, the possibility that the world didn't behave as we thought it did. Um, and then it, it's not been a story that I've returned to much since then. Um, but about three years ago, we became aware that there were these 200 hours, 250, I think, hours, some repetition. Uh, 200, there were these 200 hours of tape recordings um, made by Morris Gross, who was the lead investigator of this these phenomena. And what I, I guess what attracted me to that was, you know, I think most of the docs that I make are about, you know, with that sort of clash between or, or the, the tension between, you know, what's out there, the real that we can't quite know and what's going on in our heads. And for me, this audio was very kind of ambiguous and, uh, it, you know, fairly early on, I thought about what would happen if you reconstructed this house Um you know, filled it with this audio, worked with actors to lip sync the actuality and then kind of brought in kind of firsthand contemporary witnesses as well. Um, and so for me, it's a it's a what fascinated me was, you know, it asked questions about why do we believe what we believe? You know, what's the nature of reality? All of those things that I'm interested in. Well, let me let me uh, backtrack with two questions. First off, when you were a a, a teenager and these events were unfolding again it's one thing to read about the history of this it's another to have lived through it was this something that you and your mates and and even the adults around you as this story was progressing in the mirror was this something that you were kind of following with bated breath uh each day or looking for updates through the newspaper and the radio as well i think i mean I think people were very aware of it. Um, you know, the media kind of followed it for a, a couple of weeks, maybe, and then would dip back in and out every now and then. Uh, so it's not like it, there was a kind of constant, uh, a constant coverage. But certainly, you know, we were aware of it as something that was unfolding. You know, I'd kind of grown up with, you know, my mum used to grew up in a what she thought was a haunted house and would tell me these stories about kind of furniture suddenly being moved to surround her beds and I think as a child when you kind of grew up with those stories you're always trying to sift you know the the truth from the exaggeration you know the reality from the imagination and I guess that that was sort of something you know I always found those stories quite disturbing and uh I guess that was something that drew me to it as well did you believe your mom did I believe my mum? I, I guess I certainly began as a child believing my mum. Do I believe her now? I, like the problem with all of these stories is what you have is kind of I mean, testimony. And with, with Enfield, you have kind of testimony and sound, both of which are sort of, you know, notoriously, you know, unreliable. But, uh, you know, so I, I yeah, do I, did I believe my mum? Yeah, I think I did. Do I believe her now? I don't know. Well, and I see the artwork for Sour Grapes in the background there. And yeah, your your other work in that case, talking about a very intense wine auction market or 
or athletes from uh, Ethiopia or people that are uh, um, mentally challenged, developmentally challenged that start a, a punk group and heavy load. How, how does this fit in your opinion? Is this on brand for you or is this a little bit outside of what your career has been dedicated to as a documentarian? Um, I think, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it is a kind of real range of subjects that I've covered. I think there is something in common with them, which is about, you know, how do, how do we know what we know sort of thing? That's a very broad question. For me, it was really different in a production sense, you know, like usually in a documentary, um, you know, especially if it's something that's unfolding as we're shooting and working with a really small crew, sometimes shooting myself, we're very fluid, just responding to a situation. Whereas this, because we'd embarked on this crazy kind of technique of trying to lip sync, you know, the, the, these audio recordings, it had to be hyper planned and was shot kind of like a drama. You know, we had to had our eight minutes a day that we had to do and, uh, and you're know, really kind of going for it in a very different kind of way. So yeah, very, very new experience for me. And also making a series, you know, unfolding a story over that amount of time and that quantity of material was, um, yeah, it was new for me. Yeah, four plus hours of this as a docu-series, was that pretty much uh, planned from the beginning as opposed to making this a two-hour documentary? Yeah, I mean, we, we did think for a little bit about doing it as a doc, but it seemed you know you know maybe easier to fund as a, as a as a series in some ways because that's where that that's you know that's where that's where the interest is at the moment i think in factual series for better or worse um uh but i also think it allowed us you know the thing about series is you can kind of take these little eddies off into things and you can kind of explore things and you can introduce a character who you bring in and then leave in a way that is harder to do in a feature you know like the arrow of the feature has to be firing pretty directly you know towards its its conclusion um and then maybe for that this story that was appropriate because as you say it's a story that's been told many times before and one of the strengths of the series i think is that it allows you to kind of approach it from lots of different angles it it almost has this experimental vibe to it because as you said this hybrid docu-series We've previously seen dramatizations and reenactments, but I honestly, I cannot recall if I've ever seen anything quite like this where we have actors that are lip syncing to actual audio that is available hundreds of hours, as you said. And then we're getting the interviews with people that were there. So all just that as a concept really drew me in immediately. As a filmmaker, you're you're kind of stretching these new or, or flexing these new muscles. I would assume that that is a new challenge for you. Sure. Yeah. De uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, even, even working with actors is not something I've done for a long time, you know, um, uh, for me, what was exciting about that is I don't see these as like just normal kind of recreations that you do because you don't have any video footage. Um, for me, there was something about the fact that the audio of the series is is kind of authentic and the pictures of these kind of layered interpretations on top of it. I really like that that side of it. Um, it's almost like the actors are kind of haunted by these tapes in some way. It's not, there's something very strange about it, which I don't think we knew would work when we started. Um, and it's interesting, I think, with an audience that you, there are times in the series where you forget um, 
that these are actual audio, you know, actual audio tapes from the, you know, actual documentary audio tapes. And then at times you're pulled back into that, you know, hopefully that's, that's, that was the method we tried to do. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the set. Cause it seems like you're actually, you rebuilt this house, this Enfield house for North London and talk about the construction of the set and why that ended up being beneficial for you to kind of bringing this story to life. I mean, and full disclosure, I read in another interview where you were talking a little bit about that kind of gave you a sense of place and how the audio might kind of lay out throughout yeah. the house, but speak to that yeah, a little absolutely. bit more. Yeah. So, um, you know, Morris was this very precise engineering brain. And one of the first things he did was create this measured plan um, of the house, actually, which I can share with your your listeners um, if you have a website, but, uh, you know, creating little kind of measurements and where the furniture was and uh, the size of the rooms and sometimes where things happened. Um, it was sort of part of his documentation of the case. Um, so that gave us a great starting point to actually do the set build. Um, and then our production designer, Natalie O'Connor, was kind of on this search to really replicate things that were in the photographs that were taken at the time. You know, we worked a bit with Janet and Margaret, um, two the two girls who, who, who you know now women at the time were twelve and fourteen were at the centre of the case. Um, they had some things still from the house, so the set has this weird combination, like the whole thing of real things that were actually in the house and uh, um, and and sort of replicas. Um, and yeah, when we so so our process was, you know, obviously we had to cut these scenes out of the audio tape, you know, before we built that space. And then when you're starting to try to put actors in there and and work out how are people moving around this room, you know, there must be someone there, or he must be there at that moment, or then they seem to be there at this moment, or someone's upstairs, you know, it felt like the audio was starting to sort of tell you how it needed to be blocked around that around that space. And then we also used the set as a, a way of sort of taking people back into that memory. Um, so, you know, there's a point where the photographer enters the space and he uses the space to describe what happened. I mean, actually, in a way, I feel like looking at it now, I'd have liked to have done that more. Um, there were sort of practical reasons why that was difficult. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was both a, a both prompt for the, for, for our interviewees, our contributors, and also a place where you could unfold the story through the tapes. Yeah, it's the results is that it is both creepy, but also very lived in and very accessible, I guess. It does feel like we're we're moving through this house through the power of these actual audio tapes and uh, watching, you know, the actors perform. I, I'm curious you know, when you're telling a story, as much as you might try to be objective, your own your own opinions and subjectivity comes through. What kind of insight did you glean about this family, about Morris Gross, about Graham Morris, the photographer of the the famous, infamous photo of Janet? What kind of insight are you were you gleaning about these people? And what was sort of your ultimate takeaway about what happened? I think when you start on a project like this, you know, it's like, oh, poltergeist, that sounds fun, kind of thing. You know? And of course, like often, as soon as you start talk to, you know, the real people involved in this situation, you kind of realize that it's full of um, you know, deep sort of emotion and and you know, maybe even trauma. Um, and you're kind of dealing with a very different thing. Um 
my, you know, I certainly, I, I didn't come away with the sense that, you know, this had been an, an invented, uh, you know, an invented kind of project of the children or the family, you know, it's kind of it unfolded over an 18 month period. There's plenty of times in the tapes where it feels completely out of control, um, out of their control. Um, that's not to say that, you know, kids don't play around. And I think, you know, kids in a war zone play at war and that doesn't mean the war isn't happening. So, so I don't think that helps us. And in a way for me, it's like, it's almost less interesting whether uh, the, the the poltergeist exists or not. I'm kind of interested in why do people come to believe in it and or even need it. Um, uh, that and that's not to say that the poltergeist doesn't exist. I'm just quite open minded about that. I think um, so. In the you know in the um, I, I think one conclusion I came to you know what that that. Morris's attempt, which is an honourable one, I think, to try and find evidence for this, um, I sort of feel in some ways is 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 a doomed attempt because, you know, it's not for nothing that these phenomena are called the unknown. It feels like they're of a different order somewhere between mind and matter and that you can't measure a ghost. Um, so that, that I think, think is kind of, but that's not to say it doesn't have a reality, you know what I mean? Uh, so I think that's kind of where I ended up on it. And I'd certainly, you know, absolutely kind of honor and respect the experience of those who who were in the house and, and at 45 years distance, you know, it's it's in a way, I don't think we'll ever get closer than than that testimony than saying, well, do you believe them or don't you believe them? Yeah. Yeah, it's I know there there was a lot of accusations throughout the years that maybe the girls were pulling some pranks or or wanting attention. And Honestly, that never quite felt like a complete, uh, I guess, approximation was taking place. That maybe, you know, yes, as you said, even people tell jokes, gallows humor and war zones. And and maybe the girls even felt a, a pressure to deliver sometimes to to this sort of father, father figure, uh, adopted father figure, Morris Gross. But still, to keep that up and to be delivering that for two years 18 months your takeaway is not that these girls now women no. were just faking all of this uh, no absolutely not i mean and and you know if they were god at what at what cost you know it's like the consequences for them were pretty awful i, I, I you know i know it just doesn't doesn't hang together as an idea uh yeah it's a, it's a bit of a pop culture elephant in the room these these days because of course the conjuring 2 which became a big uh box office success involved Ed and Lorraine Warren and their accounts of being involved with this I think can you put that to rest based on your interviews how involved they were based on what the the sisters and uh Graham Morris uh what their kind of thought was um yeah i mean i i've tried to avoid kind of watching other represent as soon as i got involved in this avoid other, watching other, other representations of the story in case i was influenced i actually haven't seen the conjuring too i will watch it now once i went through this you know release but um yeah they came to the house i think on three occasions uh you know two twice on what well, i think they they stayed one night um there are some tape there's a couple of tape recordings of them there 
um, it was very late in the process, like maybe mid 78, I think I'm right in saying, or possibly 79, I could, I could um, tell you that if I looked it up, but, um, but yeah, they, it was pretty peripheral, you know, Mor Morris was there three or four nights a week for, you know, a year at least. Um, so it, I would, yeah, I would say that, that, that it's, that their involvement was slight. And most of the tape recordings are Lorraine Warren on the phone to the National Enquirer trying to sell the stories. Do you think that Morris Gross was involved and spending so much time with this family? Even, you know, there is this thought that maybe he even kind of funded or helped to fund this vacation, this holiday for them, mm -hmm. for the family to get away for a week. Do you think that this involvement was purely research and investigative focused or did he become truly attached to this family and to these sisters well and and the son i think he um yeah i think i think morris started out you know perhaps as we did with the series you know it's like uh, oh it's a it's a poltergeist i want to go and get to the bottom of that and then you know fairly soon i think he realized and i think this changed also the way he investigated other things later you know that that you can't in investigate a poltergeist without supporting and involving the people who are experiencing it um and he became yeah i think he did become very supportive of the family it's a kind of dual-edged sword his interest did bring in all of those other um people that were interested you know not that he even wanted them there but the consequence of you know this being in the newspapers and in, in on television was that you know people would come visit the house ranging from physicists to ghost hunters to priests to you know mediums to neighbors um and you know in a way the series is as much about the impact of that on the family as it is is about the impact of the events themselves um but i think he, yeah i think i think morris was good-hearted well-intentioned i think he did get close to the family and you know as janet says in the series you know he continued to to visit them kind of you know long long after the events had stopped there's theories that when you start telling stories even even the dramatizations of true stories of hauntings and whatnot you might stir up activity to theory and then when you're talking about as you said bringing items that the sisters owned into onto set i am curious about strange happenings that occurred on set and it is halloween here in the states and i guess in the uk you guys have uh, been infected by our halloween bug but uh <laughs> anything strange that took place on set that really made you think beyond the pale this is odd I think you kind of, yeah, you get orientated towards these things. And, you know, some would say, well, you're just noticing, you know, these patterns that exist in the world. Uh, and others would say, well, it's just coincidence. And you're kind of cognitively recognizing a pattern that, that isn't there. But um, yeah, it's certainly a lot of weird stuff with dates and numbers. Um, and then I think I've, I've sort of told the story before, but that there was this strange incident where we were chasing down a typewriter morris had used one of the really early ibm selector typewriters and we wanted to get you know his typewriter to because the typewriter and the notes that he takes is quite important in it and we'd gone on ebay and we'd found a couple and they hadn't worked and then finally we found one that the guy the guy who was selling it said it worked you know and we got it into the art department plugged it up and at the time the um series was called the happenings was our working title 
and uh, the person in the art department typed out the happenings. And when they hit the S, there was a kind of bang and and, and the uh, typewriter caught fire and never worked again. So it's, that completely freaked, freaked them out, I think. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, but these, these, as you say, these things happening happen when you uh, start putting putting your attention that way. The uh, the old saying that everyone's a critic, I guess it extends to potential specters. Didn't Absolutely. didn't didn't care for the working title, The Happenings. Exactly. <laughs> um, and the uh, I I I won't keep you for too much longer, but for you, when you wrap up a story like this and you've become so invested invested, and again listening to hundreds of hours of tapes and then speaking to the people. Do you, as a documentarian, do you just wrap up that story and wrap up that interaction with people and then you move on? Or is there something that still lingers with you from telling this story and other stories that that you've told? Yeah, I, I mean, I usually end up staying in touch with the people who've been in my films in some form, you know, and often that that kind of diminishes over the years. But, but you know, I think you have a responsibility beyond the film itself. You know, it's not like you go in, you film something and you leave and that's it. Uh, um so so yeah so that's that's Im important i think uh usually what happens after a series like this is you know you'll get offered the enfield poltergeist 2 or uh you know whatever the 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 um the the carlisle poltergeist or and and for me one of the joys of documentary making and the privileges of it is that you can do this deep dive often over a couple of years we're into an, a sort of subject area and you talk to people who are the kind of world's experts in it and people who have direct experience of it. Um, and then it feels like uh, when I've kind of finished, I, what I want to do is to explore something else as opposed to explore the same thing, partly because, you, you know, it's got a kind of certain completeness to it in the way that we've looked at it and, and it feels time to move on. So you move on from the subject, but not from the people. Do you believe in the authenticity of Graham Morris's photograph of Janet Hodgson seemingly levitating from the bed? Well, well it depends what you mean by authenticity. I mean, it's a photograph. He took it. Uh, it's not, it's, it's, he wasn't in the room. Um, he, I, how can you, you know, it's a, it's an image. You could how you have to, I don't think you can come down either way because you don't know what happened in the 20 seconds before that photograph was taken. Do you think she jumped? I, I just couldn't say. I couldn't say. I couldn't say. You know, there's multiple photos. There are some of them are pretty weird. Some of them look like jumping. Some of them are. Some of them, you know, you you think, you know, as he says at the time when he's got that neg strip, which unfortunately we couldn't get hold of again. I think because because the BBC never returned it to him. But there's that bit of archive of him uh, with the neg strip showing the BBC, and he's talking about how his remote shutter goes a sixth of a second and how you know janet goes from prone in the bed to upright within a sixth of a second and the physical impossibility of that you know so yeah strange strange and, and inconclusive yeah and i don't know obviously i wasn't there but i actually think with the with this docu-series obviously we've seen the photo before but with this docu-series it almost makes it more compelling to me because you see how narrow that that area is and it's not like they have massive cathedral ceilings for a child to be jumping off a bed in the middle of the night in the darkness, it just seems impossible. No, but it seems awfully strange for that mm -hmm. to have, to have taken place. But, exactly. 
but you you spent more time in the the recreation of the house <laughs> so you would and, you, and you have you know you have her statement after i'm not sure it's that particular incident but after one of those flying out of the bed uh moments where what she describes and i sort of feel she describes it credibly as being dragged you know being pulled out of the bed uh, so yeah well and just kind of going back to the the fact that you have actors lip syncing to actual audio as a documentarian and you're you're presenting yes you are telling a story but you're you're also presenting kind of the story i guess as is as much as you can when you're also directing actors and directing the expressions of actors to align with these tapes is there a challenge as a documentarian where you run the risk of kind of editorializing or becoming too yeah. involved because you are directing the expressions? Yeah, I think you have to beware of like over interpreting things, you know, that and over signaling them. I mean, for the actors working, because I think people have done actuality where it's just interviews before, but the, the, sorry, I'm lip syncing where it's just interviews, but the difference with this is it's kind of actuality. It's just life unfolding onto the tape. Um, and one of the things you're depriving an actor of is the way of delivering a line, you know, that, that, that sort of basic thing in acting. Um, so I think for the actors, it was very much a case of trying to sort of get from the line back to the person or from the sound back to the person. Um, so I think, and I think you know, a lot of what you see there is is how the actors, having spent time with that that the sounds and voice and and kind of words of that character, there, there, you know, you've got their interpretation. But I think certainly there were times where I would ask them to pull back on an interpret, you know, something that felt like it was pushing a, a, a way of thinking about that line for an audience too far. Why do you think that? now nearly 46 i guess 46 years after the incidents first began why is this a story that continues to captivate people in england as well as becoming one of the most famous modern day hauntings why I think, and why now i guess i i think um at the time, because it was happening in a very ordinary house in an ordinary street, and it could have been anyone, you know, it wasn't a ghost story in a country house or a, with a headless knight or or something in a castle, it wasn't remote like that. Um, and I think the fact that it had witnesses who, you know, were, were socially credible, you know, police officers, scientists, heads of university physics departments, um, uh, you know, a well-known an inventor, um, I think all that that is what makes it compelling that testimony um uh, as well as the testimony testimony of the family you have no real interest in you know making up a poltergeist um why now because i think i think horror kind of and i don't actually i'm not even sure i would classify this as horror but you know the uncanny comes to the surface when I think it, at, at times when the world is unstable and we're full of fears and it's a way of us kind of processing our fears and anxieties in a in perhaps, you know, through a story, through the screen in a safe kind of way. That would be my my take on it. And I think yeah. the 70s were a similar, 70s were a similar period. You know, there was this flowering of, of films like The Exorcist and Carrie and later on The Shining, you know, that, that, that kind of spoke to that 
quite unstable world at the time. And I feel like we're in a similar period. Yeah, you touch on it right in the beginning, the first episode of the kind of the socioeconomic issues that are taking place in the world and the fact that people can't really even necessarily afford to go on holiday. This, I think what makes this so relevant, this story now, is that it is set in a working class family. They can't just up and move because they have a ghost or a haunting or whatever. They're stuck there and outside things are unstable and inside things feel unstable uh, and it just the haunting comes home yeah i think that's right they're so trapped by their economic circumstances there and the thing they have is that community their community you know they're near to their relatives they're near to their neighbors to move to move would have been really inconceivable to them i think um, they ended up staying in the house for another 16 years i i desperately have to let you go but i do have to ask are you are you going to see the catherine tate uh, stage production of the infield haunting when that opens uh, next year. Yeah, do you know what I, I I realized it's in the it's it opens you know before it's West End run in our local town, so I'm going to the very first night. <laughs> Should be great. I I definitely want to hear your response to it, having now documented this. Uh, and and again, Jerry, this Apple Apple uh, Plus show, this docu series is just such an interesting take on the story it's such a clever narrative and for someone that thought he knew the story you add so many more layers to this it's it's a really nice piece of work so i i respect you and uh and commend you on that all right thanks Aaron. yeah thanks so much jerry and i look forward to speaking with you again in the future and that was director jerry rothwell director of the four-part hybrid docu-series, The Enfield Poltergeist, available October 27 on Apple TV+. The I really found this to be an inventive approach to this investigation and way a way to bring like new life, reinvigorate this story that you think you know this story, but uh, I would honestly say this introduces a lot of chapters, a lot of information that I was not aware of with The Enfield Haunting. So I do recommend checking it out. Alrighty, I am Aaron Sagers, and that is it for me and this episode of Talking Strange. Until next time, be kind, stay spooky, and keep it weird. Talking Strange is a part of the Den of Geek Network, available wherever you listen to other podcasts. If you like what we're doing, share Talking Strange with your friends and fellow spooky nerds. And please, subscribe, rate, and leave a nice review. If you have a strange or paranormal story you would like to share with us, please email talkingstrange at denofgeek.com for a chance to have it read on a future episode. For video episodes of Talking Strange, check out twitch.tv slash denofgeektv and youtube.com slash denofgeekus. And please follow at TalkStrangePod on Twitter and at Aaron Sagers on Twitter Instagram, and Patreon for more paranormal pop culture content.